Heavenly Father, we do bring our lives to the altar and set them down before you. Father, we give you uh, thanks, glory, and praise for uh, your uh, effort to rescue, to save uh, sinners such as us. Father, thank you that you love us, you care for us, that you are worthy of our worship, that you um, are worthy of our awe, of our thanksgiving. Father, thank you for who you are. Amen. So Jonathan is going to play some music this morning. I don't know if any of you are going to start to recognize this song. I'll tell you a little bit as it's playing. Last time I went to a Royals game, the relief pitchers pick like their favorite song. And they march out to their favorite song. You know, for some of them it's... it's uh, it rocks, and they want, I don't know, maybe they want the crowd jazzed up. Uh, and see, this song's kind of starting to build. Maybe this is my relief pitcher music. Every time I get up to preach, this is the theme song to the good, the bad, and the ugly. Did anyone recognize it yet? A couple of us old Western, old uh, Clint Eastwood fans in the house. I think this needs to be my preaching music. I, that, I'm, that doesn't, because then you're wondering, does Jason think that he's the good, does Jason think that he's the bad, or does Jason think that he's the ugly? No, it's none of them. Here's why I want you to kind of hear this music. Um, it's good soundtrack music. It's good theme music. Because this, this morning, um, I want us to, to start by thinking about stories, about epic stories. Okay, Jonathan. Thank you. From here on out, it, it just gets more and more distracting. Um, I want us to think about a story, because I want us to look at First Timothy through the lens of story. I think that soundtrack is good as a, a story for a sweeping epic. As you hear that, that uh, musician singing, maybe you can picture like Clint Eastwood on horseback with that poncho and a hat and a cigar, and he's riding off into the sunset. It fits the epic. It fits the, the sweep and the arc of the story. Um, I don't know what you would pick as the soundtrack to the story of your life, Maybe you think that your life is an epic story, like uh, Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. Maybe you think that your story is like an indie drama, like no one really knows about your ups and downs, but uh, you know, they pluck at the heartstrings. Maybe you think your life story, like the soundtrack, should go with a comedy. Uh, sometimes my life, I think it is a, a comedy. Maybe, maybe you feel like your life is a, a, a tragedy, and the soundtrack of, of your life should be a little bit tragic. Um, I just want you to, to think about that this morning because looking at 1 Timothy, there's uh, the place in 1 Timothy, the second half of chapter 1, where Paul, uh, starting off his letter to 1 Timothy, or letter to Timothy, the first of two, Paul says, here's the, the job that I need for you to do. He gives him this instruction. He says, uh, fight, defend the gospel against false teachers and love these new Christians in Ephesus. In the second half of chapter 1, Paul, uh, he just kind of, in writing, stumbles in to his own story. It's almost like it, it just spills out of him. And he starts to tell his story. And then throughout uh, 1 Timothy and then into 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, remember your story. 
he touches on a couple of things from their past. It's almost as if Paul is saying to Timothy, remember where we came from. Remember the turning point of your story and let God's story guide our future as we walk with Jesus. So for us this morning, here's what I want us to see when we get to the text. We are prone to focus on the story that's right in front of us. Uh, Scripture, though, calls us to remember day in and day out that spiritual life is epic. It's not small. It's not just about today. The turning point of all of human history, the turning point of all human history, my story, your story, is this. Jesus came to save sinners, even the ones like you and me. So I want us to look at the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 1 through the lens of story. Three ideas I want to share with you. The turning point of every spiritual story. Character development. Paul will talk about this change that happens in his life. And then the third part, how small stories fit together with big stories. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Here's what the text says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. So let's start with this idea that there is a turning point to every life story. Paul says it this way, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, in explaining how, what this means and the significance of this idea, I would say it this way, salvation is the turning point of every spiritual story because of what salvation requires. When we read, Jesus came to save, we have to remember what was required. Jesus was there at the beginning of time to speak creation into existence. Jesus was there to breathe life into Adam and Eve. Jesus was there to start the blood pumping through creation. To come into the world to save sinners meant that his own voice would be silenced, his breath choked off hanging on a cross, his blood spilled out, staining the ground at the foot of the cross. It was a turning point when the creator died in our place. Uh, salvation is the turning point because of sin. Um, if you were to, to stop someone driving by outside of church this morning or, or you know, out for their morning walk and ask them, why is Jesus important? Why is Jesus significant? They might give you a, a variety of answers, but I would say this morning that Jesus did not come to establish a new moral code. Jesus did not come to bring humanity a new measure of, of love and personal happiness. Jesus did not come to give us subtle guidance in how to live your best life. Jesus came to deliver us from the wrath that our sin has earned and heal us 
from our sin sickness. Jesus came to save sinners. This is the turning point that makes sense of the entire story. All of the small chapters make sense because of this. I was thinking about how to, to illustrate that idea for you and thinking about big stories. And I'm not sure uh, why this popped into my head, but it occurred to me that perhaps the largest story that I was forced to read in school was Moby Dick. So I went to the library. Here's the public library's uh, copy of Moby Dick. I think maybe I'm starting to look like Herman Melville with his beard. I, that was not intentional. Here's, uh, here's Moby Dick. Um, I had to read this epic novel, and it's the kind of book that you could easily forget why you had to read it. Here's my summary of the novel Moby Dick. Whale bites sea captain. Sea captain seeks revenge. Whale smashes everyone. I don't know how many words that, uh, that little summary was. This is over 800 pages, so uh, maybe you can take my uh, Cliff Notes version. The point of the book, getting revenge on a whale for eating your leg won't end well. That um, is the point of the book, but the reason you read it in school is because it's this epic story of man versus nature, this epic story of one man's uh, his search for revenge and how that drags everyone down, literally down into the depths of the water because of his, his quest for revenge. That is compelling. That's why you have to read this in school. Um, but interestingly, or maybe not interestingly, this book is filled with facts about whales that don't have anything to do with man's like uh, fight with nature or this search for revenge. Let me read some of the, the names of the chapters of this book. The cabin table. There's a, a chapter on the table. Uh, the blanket. The whale's head. The tail. Measurement of a whale's skeleton. The, these are the names of the chapters of Moby Dick. They are not that interesting if you're not interested in whales. No teacher would require you to read 800 pages of whale facts, right? It only makes sense, it's only significant because of how those facts about whales inform the epic tale of man against nature, revenge, the, the point of the book, give the small chapters meaning. I think the pull of, of your life, of my life, uh, are a lot like that. We have our attention down here on chapters of life that might read like this. The conflict at work. Maybe that's a chapter of, of your last week. Summer vacation. Maybe that's the chapter that you're living right now. Junior year. Maybe that's the, the chapter that starts this fall. Maybe it's a chapter like the sickness or when I fell in love. Chapters that seem to be really significant because they're right in front of us. But none of those chapters are the, the turning point of life. We need to remember to keep the turning point of life in focus. How do we remember that Jesus came to save sinners? 
is the point of life when we're dealing with chapters that seem to demand all of our attention. Uh, one point of application that I would give would be to fight to prioritize what matters. How does this season of life fit with what God is doing? What about the season of today? What about this moment? Fight to prioritize this moment, this day, this chapter in the bigger context of what God is up to. Pray, Lord, keep my eyes focused on what really matters today. Lord, help me to keep the small chapters of life from dominating my emotions and energy. Lord, let the turning point of this life be what guides me through the small chapters that I face today. Second idea that I think we see in the text is what Paul says, I would say it this way, that the Lord desires to turn the villains of the story into heroes. Paul, in talking about how Jesus comes to save sinners, says, of whom I am the worst. Let's talk about this word, the worst. Um, in the, I read from the New International Version this morning. It describes Paul as the worst. The English Standard Version says that uh, of the sinners, I was foremost. Um, the word in Greek is protos, and it means top of the list of those who miss the mark. First in time, first in rank, first in place. So in pursuing self-righteousness, Paul was heading to first place in record time, winning the gold medal in the race to get to hell. He was first of the worst. He was foremost of sinners. So why did Paul say this? Why is Paul telling this part of his story? You could conclude that at one time Paul was the greatest human obstacle to the message of Jesus spreading. Um, he gives a self-indictment in verse 13. Here's what he says in verse 13. Uh, starting at verse 12, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He has a, a serious indictment of his past. He was the worst of sinners. But by the time that Paul is writing 1 Timothy, here's what we know about Paul. No one would have considered Paul to be the worst sinner. His reputation might have preceded him, but once they met him, they would have seen what he wrote in places like Philippians chapter 3. Here's what Paul wrote about himself. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul has forgotten his past, and his only goal in life is to please Jesus. And then he says in verse 17 of Philippians 3, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul writes to the early Christians, My past is in the past. My life is, is centered on Jesus. Follow my example. So why does Paul say, I am the worst of sinners, even though his story is bad in the past, but people around him, especially Timothy, knew how devoted he was to following Jesus. Why does Paul say he's the worst? 
I believe that Paul is touching on his past to highlight the grace and glory of Jesus. Paul had been so sinful, but Jesus had been so good. There was nothing good in Paul's past to draw God to him. Paul was not a good guy who needed a few spiritual tools for self-improvement. Paul was the worst. And in grace, Jesus changed him. That's what Jesus does. He saves the undeserving. He rains down love on the worst. Um, I think this is not just the story of Paul's life and what he is referencing here in 1 Timothy 1. I think it's the theme of uh, Scripture. The other day in the car, my daughter, I don't even remember why she said this, what we were talking about, but my daughter said something like this. King David sure did have some problems for one who, like, followed God well. And I don't remember where that came from, and I kind of said, yeah, you're exactly right, kid. Like, oh, good job. Um, I think that's the theme of David's life. I think it's the theme of many of the heroic characters that we see within Scripture. They are the last ones who would deserve to be elevated. Uh, the heroes list in Hebrews chapter 11 includes those who are guilty of murder, rape, prostitution, drunkenness, every other character weakness, but they were each transformed by faith. It's a theme within Scripture that glorifies God. The Bible so regularly highlights the development of failure into glory that it seems closer to the rule than the exception. It could be, I think I could make a case that the rule of God's word is that God turns the villain into the hero, that he turns victory out of disaster, that new life comes from the darkness of death. The Lord seems to take pleasure in telling his story this way. And when it comes to our lives and how this impacts us, I want you to think about what Paul is saying when he says, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And think about it this way. I meet with lots of students, especially during the fall. So in you know, the next month, uh, next 45 days, I will sit and, and drink coffee with a ton of students and I'll ask them each this question. Uh, tell me the story of how spiritual belief was formed in your life been doing that for a lot of years, and I want to make a prediction. That's an unfortunate prediction. I will hear far too few stories that sound like the words of Paul. I'll hear a lot of stories of spiritual belief, of Christianity that go like this. Well, my family was okay, and my life is okay, and maybe Jesus makes me more Okay, that's not the story that Paul tells, and I don't believe that that's the story of God's Word. Contrast what I just said with the experience that we've seen in the text this morning. My sin was worst. The love of Jesus is the best because he rescued me. The rescue of Jesus matters because as followers of Jesus, if you've ex experienced this kind of rescue, when you struggle 
you can hear the words of Jesus. I have rescued you. When you doubt, you can hear the words of Jesus. I rescued you. When we fail, you can hear the words of Jesus. I rescued you. Paul experienced deeply dramatic rescue and character transformation. And the same Jesus who rescued Paul the worst rescues us. Why would we expect the transition from sin to salvation to be any less powerful in our lives? Third part of the story. Well, before I jump, I'm jumping ahead. I want to talk about a call to worship. Uh, often, if you are familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with the words of Paul, if you're familiar with First uh, Timothy, um, it's one of my favorite books of Scripture. I've read it again and again. If you have done that like I have, it's easy to read Paul's words, these letters, with our brains and miss that these are heart words, especially uh, parts like verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul says in verse 16 and 17. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is falling over himself with heart language to express worship, to express thanksgiving, to the glory of the Savior. Why do we worship Jesus as Lord? Because he is great in his mercy towards us. Because he pours out grace, unmerited favor. Because he's patient with us. To this good King Jesus, we pour out honor and praise and give our very lives to him in worship. Third part of the story, third part of what Paul references comes up in verse 17 that I just read. His small story is a part of the big story. That Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe. Paul didn't conceive of his salvation as merely personal. Something private, something that you, you, know, you, you don't talk about in uh, dinner parties or with other people. Paul didn't conceive of his salvation as personal. Paul's story was a, a rescue story for the entire community of these new Christians. Um, his story served as a guideline for that whole community. I've been reading a biography about Leonardo da Vinci. He's the guy who paints these great works like the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. And uh, da Vinci was a student not only of painting and sculpture, but he's also a student of, uh, of science and of mathematics. And he would study the, uh, the angles and the, the numbers associated with how the human body ought to look or how the, the curve of hair or a, an eddy in water, what they should look like mathematically. And so because of that, he had these guides for proportions, these guides for where an object should appear in the space of his paintings. And what he would do is he would trace these guidelines underneath, like in, I don't know if it was in pencil or charcoal, but he would trace these guidelines underneath the oil that he would come back and, and paint over the top. And those guidelines served as the rule. 
You, you can't play something too far back or too far forward or to the right or the left in the scene unless they matched with his guidelines. I think that Paul saw his very life as a rule, as a guideline for followers of Jesus. His past life was the guide for this is what it looks like when destructive, man-made, self-righteous religion rules your life. Here's the guide for this, the destruction that comes next. Here's the guide for what following Jesus served to display in, in real life. His salvation as the worst of sinners was on display, a guideline. When it comes to us, I would ask you this question. What story do you have to tell? When it comes to your spiritual life, what story would you share with others? Paul's setting an example, not just how Jesus transforms lives, but also in the proclamation of story. It slips out of him. This is my story. I was the worst, but the patience and grace and love of God transformed me. Uh, not only does he talk about his story, about three or four times in 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember your story. He says, remember the prophecy made about you, about who you would become. Remember the prayers prayed over you before you joined me in this mission. Remember the family that you came from. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, remember your grandmother. Remember this faith. Remember your past so that you can tell the story of how you got here. Paul's encouragement for Timothy in the midst of his difficult spiritual task is this remembrance story. I believe Timothy would have shared his own story with that church in Ephesus about how Jesus saved him. What's the story about how the grace of Jesus is saving you? Can you tell your story? Can you tell your spiritual story in three minutes? That's a kind of a random number, but it's maybe the length of a car ride with a coworker, um, maybe a, a, an overlap at your lunch break. Can you tell your spiritual story? When was the last time you practiced talking about your own story of salvation? If you struggle to articulate your story, have you asked yourself why? Have you asked uh, a wise, godly counselor, does my story of salvation, does it match up with what you know about God's word? Does this make sense to you, uh, a friend, a, follow, uh, a fellow follower of Jesus, so that when you share it with the people that you care about in your community, does it make sense to them? This morning, I would ask that you would try to remember that the turning point of life is that Jesus came to save sinners, that character development, the story that we're living, is about a transition from being the worst in comparison to the love and glory and patience of Jesus into something brand new. And I would ask you to try to remember that your small story fits within the biggest story of all time. This morning, you might think that your story is insignificant, that it's not worth paying attention to or it's not worth telling, that it's incomplete, 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. I would remind you this morning that the only insignificant spiritual story is one that's just about us. If all you have to share is your opinion, your perception, that's an insignificant story. But if you know Jesus who has come to save sinners, if that's the center of your story, don't wait another day to begin talking about it. If you have not felt the impact of sharing your story of salvation, what's stopping you? Maybe you are just kind of a blank this morning. In talking about this story of salvation, you're kind of a blank. You don't have a story to tell. I would love to share with you my story, not because I'm the center of that story, but because, like Paul, I have been rescued by Jesus. I'd love to share that story with you, to hear your story, and to fill in that blank. I would say don't wait to try to figure that out. I would also say if you know your story, but you have not felt the impact of sharing your story of salvation, what's stopping you? Start telling your story. It is an epic story if it includes and stars Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, um, thank you for making the salvation of sinners the turning point of your story of drawing mankind back into relationship with yourself through your son, Jesus. Father, thank you that this isn't the end of the story, but it's just the beginning. That our worship of you, our bringing you glory and honor and praise, that that's the story that lasts forever, for eternity. Father, I pray this morning that if there are folks sitting here this morning who are just a blank when it comes to how you have come to save sinners, that they would do, um, do the work of um, weighing out their heart, meeting with you, talking with you, talking to someone else about that. Father, for those of us who have a story of salvation, a story of rescue, Father, I pray that we would not be satisfied to keep that to ourselves, but it would be a story that we share, a story that we would tell with the same kind of passion or excitement that we would would tell the, the great stories of literature or songs or music, the things that we love. Father, I pray that our stories would be significant because they star Jesus and that we would share those with our friends, our neighbors, and our family. Amen. Thank you, guys. If you have any questions about that, I'll be up front here. We'd love to talk to you.